hey everybody, uh, thanks for uh, taking a, a minute to watch, or a few minutes obviously, to watch our message on uh, Revelation 21, uh, eight, uh, 1 through 8. The message uh, is entitled, Powerful Pictures of Hope. Powerful Pictures of Hope. And we had uh, some trouble with our audio uh, today. So here's what I'm doing. Please stay with me, and I'm going to reproduce just a few minutes of our introduction from the sermon, and then the rest of the sermon, most of the heart of the sermon, uh, it will be on its original audio and video. So here, here's what I, primarily what I said, or or, or what I meant to say, and, and that is, um, I'm blessed with warm memories that stir up within me blissful longings. The Germans had a word they say, I'll probably mispronounce, called Zenzucht. C.S. Lewis would often talk about it. He said, Zenzucht is a sense of blissful longing. And you can kind of get it by looking back, or you can get it by looking forward. Looking back, when I was a boy on Memorial Day weekend, we would go uh, to my grandfather and grandmother's farm. And there, we would uh, celebrate Memorial Day by going in town and having a parade and going to the cemetery and having a remembrance, and then coming home and having a picnic and then playing softball in the yard. And I probably conflated a lot of really happy things together into one memory, and I probably watercolored a lot of it to make it more romantic. But, but, I, re, but I have the, the sweetest memory of that. Everybody's getting along. Everyone's happy. The food is good. Thick burgers, sweet tea. Uh, corn on the cob, watermelon, uh, homemade ice cream, and everyone's laughing, everyone's getting along, everyone's loving one another. I in a way, this is the kind of longing that I believe that God embeds in the human heart for, to, get, to get us to, to long for heaven. But even if you don't have longings, longing, sweet memories, and longings that go backward, God wants us to have longings that go forward. He wants our hearts to be captured by longing for himself and ultimately for the, what he's going to describe in our text today in Revelation 21, uh, 1 through 8, is to inspire hope, inspire confidence that God will give us a faithful, pure, holy, joyful life as we have our eyes set on uh, the future that God has, has promised to us. So I talked a little bit in this message about the, the fact that our the, the view that we have of heaven and and of the eternal will have a profound influence on how we live our life in the present. And I mentioned in, in the message that our culture's view of heaven is distorted, and a distorted view of heaven leads to despair. George Barna, the eminent religious researcher, said, they're cutting and they're pasting religious views from a variety of different sources television, movies, conversations with friends, and the result is a highly subjective theology of the afterlife disconnected from the biblical doctrine of heaven. In other words, our culture has a distorted view of what heaven is like, and that might leads to despair. It doesn't lead to the kind of hope and joy that's possible. Now, I hope you'll continue to listen to the rest of this message and watch the rest of this message, because they're in our powerful, powerful pictures of hope. And I'm going to walk through a text of Scripture giving seven powerful things that God said are true about heaven. 
that will lead us to have hopeful, to live hopeful lives and not lead lives of despair. Thanks for joining us today. A variety of sources from television, from movies, from conversations with friends, and the result is a highly subjective theology of the afterlife, but it's disconnected from the biblical doctrine of heaven. It's like, well, what does the Bible say? What does God say? Gary Larson, the cartoonist, the far side cartoonist, caught the humor of this, if there's humor in it, with the picture of a man with angel wings and a halo, and he's sitting on a cloud, and he's got nothing to do, and he's got nothing to talk to, and his facial expression is flat, and the caption reads underneath of it, why didn't I bring a magazine? It's like heaven as the perpetual waiting room in the doctor's office, only with puffy clouds. There's a distorted view of heaven. Mark Twain had a very distorted view of a lot of things, though he was a very gifted writer now, wasn't he? And in his amazing book, he describes in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, he has a little glimpse into heaven. Miss Watson, Tom Sawyer says, Miss Watson, she went on and told me about the good place. She said all the body would have to do to go there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there. Those are the words of Huckleberry Finn. I asked if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. And I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. This may be the one literary source of the banter, I think I would rather go to hell to be with all of my friends. You hear that in the barbershop, right? Where are you going when I die? Probably hell. I mean, I would want to be with all my friends. As if hell was going to be kind of like a kind of a happy bar-like atmosphere. Well, if the Bible's true, that's not true. Toward the end of his life, Mark Twain, the writer of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, said in his autobiography, this is his view of death and of the hope that people have, the burden of the end of life, the burden of pain, care, misery grow every year at length ambition dies pride dies vanity dies longing for release comes in their place then death comes at last the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for us and and we vanish from the world where we are of no consequence and we achieve nothing and where we were a mistake and a failure and foolishness those that sounds like despair to me a wrong view of heaven and eternal life is dangerous. It's deadly. It's discouraging. It leads to despair. Is this what we have to look forward to? If this is what we have to look forward to, it doesn't inspire hope and courage and joy or holiness at all. And Bible teaches, even though in popular culture, people just assume most people, when they die, they're going to go to a blissful place called heaven. In the heaven of popular culture is a place where almost everyone goes except really notoriously evil people. All who go to heaven turn into angels in this popular culture, which the Bible doesn't teach at all. And they dwell in perpetual monotony. Most people feel almost everyone is going there. Randy Alcorn, who wrote a really helpful book on heaven, says, for every American who believes in hell... 
Actually, what he meant to say was for every American who believes he's going to hell, 120 believe they're going to heaven. So in other words, just more people believe in heaven than believe in hell, even though the same book gives us reliable information about both of them. Folks, are, are, if they're confused about heaven, and what I'm saying this is to you is if we're confused about heaven, about our eternal destiny, how can that, how can that not lead us to living a life of at least low-grade despair. But if what the Bible says about heaven is true, how could that not put life in our souls and, and how could that not give us hope and encouragement and help? And so, so the evangelical subculture should be careful about what they publish and what they say about heaven, shouldn't they? But they're not always that careful. There is such a hunger and an interest and a desire for information about heaven that sometimes we go off the page a little bit in our descriptions. And we write books that are a little speculative at, at the very least, sensational, and they go beyond scripture. I guess, I, again, I don't want to be crabby about this, but will you allow me to point this out as we're introducing this? This is a problem in the evangelical subculture. Even some of the best theologians, they write really wonderful books that have lots of things in them about, like, for instance, page after page after page about ecclesiology, about baptism. And, and, and when it gets to the end, in the part about the eternal state, it's just like a page and a half. This is really common in theology. It's very little written about the eternal state, which is extremely important. The Shedd's Dogmatic Theology has 87 pages on eternal punishment, only three on heaven. Burkhoff, is highly regarded Reformed theology, has 38 pages on creation, 40 pages on baptism and communion. <laughs> Incidentally, he gets part of that wrong, in my opinion, but that's just me, old Baptist Ken. Um, two pages on hell and one on the eternal state. Lloyd-Jones, a great Doctors of the Bible, book on the great Doctors of the Bible, it only has a few pages on the eternal state. I noticed this. As a child, when you get to the end of the book and you're reading about the eternal state, it's like, that's it? That's all? That's all we have? I would like to know more about this. What's been written and what's often been very popular are books filled with speculation and sensationalism. And now we're not talking about the major theologians. We're talking about the popular evangelical subculture, like the book Heaven is for Real by Colton Burpo or the book 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper. And these are very nice people who've written really interesting books that have truth in them. They're enormous, enormously popular, and, they, and, and even though they, they speculate a lot and they sensationalize a lot, it does make the point that people long for heaven and they want to know about eternal life. We want to know about heaven, and we should want to know about heaven. And as I mentioned, Randy Alcorn has this wonderful book on heaven. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, quite a tome, actually. In it, he argues against this wispy, ethereal, kind of um, uh, vague heaven of popular culture and that sensational, speculative heaven of evangelical popular culture. And he says this, and I think it, it makes good sense. He argues hard against it. He says, Satan does not need to convince us uh, that heaven does not exist. He only needs to convince us that heaven is the place of boring, unearthly existence. Believe, if we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. And we'll set our mind on this life and not on the next. And we won't be motivated to share our faith 
Why would we share the good news that people could spend eternity in a boring, ghostly place that even we are not looking forward to? So this should be corrected. This should be corrected by a robust biblical theology of the future, of heaven. The doctrine, and, and, and this is another piece, before, while I'm ranting here, you know, and complaining a little bit, I'm smiling. You see, I'm smiling. It's a holiday weekend. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to have indigestion here. But, but while I'm kind of course correcting this, can I say one more thing? And that is most of us here, I, I believe most of us would say we believe in the authority of Scripture. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We believe that Bible is the Word of God. And many would say that. It'd be kind of unpopular not to say that in any kind of evangelical culture at all. But here is the issue in our day. It's not really so much do we believe, do we say we believe in the inspiration of Scripture or or do we say we believe in the authority of Scripture, but do, do we believe the Scriptures are sufficient for the things that crush us that break us, that hurt us, that threaten to divide our families, that painful things that are the realities of life are the scriptures enough when it comes to those things? Or is the scripture kind of like, well, you know, ideally this is the deal, but basically through the week we set it aside, we let it gather dust, and we go back to church on Sunday, and it has no real bearing on the day-to-day hard-nosed decisions of life like the things that keep you awake at night that break your heart. And what I'm going to show you today, which is so beautiful, is that I believe that these verses, if we ever get to them, these verses that we're going to talk about, the verses that we read, are are going to address the very thing our hearts long for the most. It's like we live in a broken world, but there is a world that is not broken that's coming, and we can be a part of that world. This is the promise of the Bible. Anything else leads to despair. Now, Paul had a vision of heaven, and before we go to John's vision of heaven, let me show you that. It's interesting what Paul said, and I think we we do have to understand when we study the Bible. By the way, you might take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians 12 if you want to follow along in that, and then we'll get back to Revelation and chapter 21. But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, who probably himself visited heaven, talks about heaven. And you can kind of tell that, that when we use the word heaven, we might mean a number of different things. For instance, the, the, the earth's atmosphere in the Bible is some kind, sometimes called heaven. And space, the place where planets, stars, and moons are, is sometimes in the Bible called the heaven, probably the second heaven, the Bible refers to that. But then Paul talks about the place, paradise, where God dwells, and he calls that heaven. And heaven is often referred to as up, you know, in the Bible. And so, and, and so there is, so, so Paul talks about the first heaven, the second heaven, the third heaven. Uh, this is in 2 Corinthians 12, 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Paul's probably referring to himself with a bit of modesty here. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told, which no man can utter. And for that reason, that's all he said. But it does tell us something. It gives us a little bit of a bearing on heaven and the heavens. The heaven, the current heaven, when people say, absent from the body, present with the Lord, and the Bible says, 
that God dwells in heaven. So there's a sense in which there's this current heaven. So it's, the, and it's not to oversimplify, but there's a sense in which that the current hell is a holding tank temporary hell, and the current heaven is a temporary heaven, and then there'll be the, the new heavens and the new earth, which we're going to talk about in Revelation 21, and in Revelation 20 and 21, it talks about the abyss, uh, and, then, and it, then it talks about the, the lake of fire. One passes away, one continues uh, forever. So now that brings us to John's vision. We looked at the popular culture's view of heaven. We looked a little bit at the evangelical subculture's view of heaven. We looked briefly at Paul's uh, comments on heaven. Now let's look at John's God-given vision of heaven. John actually has a vision of heaven. And in, in, in the time that remains, we'll, we'll notice this. In, in, in chapter 21, chapter 22, we have a description of the ultimate universe, the eternal state, the heaven of heavens, the ultimate heaven. And you, and you could, and, and we're going to deal with this in three parts. Notice these. In verses 1 and 2, I'm gonna, you have what I'm going to call an amazing vision from earth. In verses 1 and 2. It's an amazing vision from earth. And then in verses 3 through 8, we'll, and, and hopefully we'll deal with these today too, you have an amazing announcement from heaven. So in verses 1 and 2, you have an amazing vision from earth. But then in the next verses, they're from 3 to 8, over and over again, it says this voice from the throne says this, and it says this, and it says this. So you want to listen to that voice from the throne. Uh, this is not the voice of popular culture. This is not the voice of popular evangelical culture. This is a voice from the throne. So we want to listen to that voice. And what does it say? We're going to see seven things that that voice from the throne says. Those are things we want to listen to. They're going to put hope in our heart like wind in our sails. And drive away despair. So you have there, this, then the third thing, which we won't deal with today, but is amazing, an amazing angelic tour in verses 9, chapter, in chapter 21, verse 9. And, and as you go on through uh, chapter 22, it's an angelic tour, an amazing one. So you have an amazing vision from earth, an amazing announcement from heaven, an amazing angelic tour. It's amazing. It is amazing. It really is. Notice in verse 1, it says, Then I saw, in verse 2, and I saw, in verse 3, and I heard. So you have the vision, right? And then you have the voice. Look at the vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and sea was no more. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem. You see what you have? You have a new heaven. You have a new earth. What else do you have? A new city, a new Jerusalem. Now, let's, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I do that sometimes. Think of the first audience. Always think of the first audience. Remember, if, if you hear me teaching, I'm always going to say, remember the first audience, the first hearers. Because there's going to be a key to unlocking meaning if we listen like the first hearers would have listened. The first readers or the first hearers would have said, New Jerusalem? And what would have come to their mind? What would have come to their mind? These people would have thought of Jerusalem maybe like we would have thought of the Twin Towers. Because about 20 years earlier, Jerusalem had been sacked, ravaged, destroyed in a horrifying destruction. 
in a fiery destruction and had been, had been humbled and destroyed and people, blood, incredible bloodshed. Little in antiquity is as dark as the descriptions of Josephus of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And here we are now sometime after AD 90 and you have this vision from heaven and it comes to its climax with, and there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth and there will be a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem. God's not done with heaven. God's not done with earth. God's not done with Jerusalem. Satan doesn't win. Jesus wins. That's all over this book. And you can win with him. We'll talk about that. The new heaven, the old heaven, the old earth are replaced by a new heaven. And, and there's no more sea. Surfers are like, no! There are probably big lakes with waves, but no sea. Why no sea? Theologians kind of arm wrestle about this one. And we have to decide, is this one of those places where we go away from a literal way of seeing it and into a figurative way? Or how, what's the mix of literal and figurative here? And, and the, the jury is out on that a bit. But I would suggest this one thing, and I would suggest that, that you tie the chapters together as they should be. And what did you just have in Revelation 20? You had the end of the temporary hell, the abyss. It was the end of that. It was over. No more. Now, there is an ultimate and eternal place of fire, of torment, of eternal conscious torment of those who have rejected Christ, of Satan and his angels and those who have rejected Christ. According to this, plain reading of this, verse 14, death in Hades. This is sometimes referred to as a sea. Sometimes all of humanity is referred to as a sea. Often in, in ancient biblical literature, the sea is a symbol of, of chaos and, and darkness and, and demonic things. But notice, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It's like the temporary hell got swallowed up in the eternal hell and is no more. And then immediately you have verse 1, it says, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth. And remember what I said, there's no sea. So it could be that. I, I don't know. Maybe there's just plain no sea. But there is water, we're going to see later. There's, there are bodies of water, and there's refreshing water. You'll see this literally later in the descriptions. And then it says in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Whatever this is, is a prepared city, prepared by God, and Beautiful beautiful, according to God's description. This is a stunning, shocking, beautiful city. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven, from God like a bride. That's an amazing vision from earth that John sees. Now, here is the amazing announcement from heaven that begins in verse 3, goes through verse 8, and there are seven parts to it. Let me go fairly quickly through these seven parts. One, verse 3, the voice said, I will now dwell with men on earth. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling. Three, three times it says God is going to dwell with men and women. Isn't that interesting? When you think of heaven, what do you normally think? Oh, we get to go be with God. Don't, don't you? I mean, we, I do. Oh, I get to go be with God now. And, of course, that's initially true. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But ultimately, in the ultimate universe, it's not us going to heaven it's God coming to earth and, 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 and taking the earth back. 
And, and uh, this is what it says here three times, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne. A loud voice from the throne is a voice that you can build your life on. This is from God. And he's saying, behold, look, the dwelling place of God is now with man on earth. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I have a question for you. Have you ever got out with somebody? Have you ever got out with somebody? You're looking funny at me. You're like, I'm not going to nod, raise my hand. I'm not going to move an inch because you and I both know that one of the most painful experiences of life is when you're out with somebody. Gentlemen, have you ever gotten in your car to go to work and things aren't quite right with your wife at home? How's that, how's that go for you? That's enough to ruin your day. Am I right? Do you ever have a misunderstanding with a child? It's so painful. And you just wish, oh, if you only knew my heart. If only you understood my love for you. If only we could be okay. If we could sit across the table and look at each other and be okay. Part of the great pain of the world is that pain that we have when we're, not, when we're out with people. But how much worse to have this existential weight of knowing that you're not right with God. How wonderful would it be to be able to look over into the eyes of Christ and know physically he's present and we are in fellowship and all is right with me and God and me and all is right with me and everyone else. This is what you say, well, there's not much physical description of heaven. No, there's not because they, you, don't want your, your, you don't want this to be obscured with a lot of minor details. Hey, it's going to be beautiful. But God is going to be there with you, and you're going to be okay with God, and God is going to be okay with you, and we're going to be okay with each other. How powerful is that? How wonderful is that? How thrilling is that? There's going to be a time when forever we'll be okay with God, God will be okay with us. Relationally, we will be healed. Our relational brokenness will all be healed. Can you imagine that? And who knows what sorrow comes out of relational brokenness, right? But anyway, the second thing of seven is the voice says, first, I will dwell with men on earth. The second, verse four, says there'll be no more sadness. There'll be, there'll be no more sorrow. Let your eyes drink that in. I, I love the poetic way he says it. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. I was a little boy, and I was, this, I was afraid and I was in a neighborhood in Grand Rapids where I was afraid and I wasn't sure the people were going to be good to me because they looked different than me. And I was a little bit afraid. And I went into a store where there was a lady there, uh, a very kind, middle-aged, maybe older African-American lady that ran the store. And I was crying. And she knelt down on her knees and took her apron and she wiped the tear out of the corner of my eye. And she said, what do you need, honey? And she gave me what I needed. God says, God says, one day I'm gonna, I'm gonna come and live with you, and then I'm gonna wipe every tear from your eyes, and death will be no more. 
neither shall there be mourning or crying or gout that's under the pain, the gout thing, that's under the pain. No more arthritis. Can I get an amen on that? No more pain. No more cancer. No more heart attacks. No more diabetes. No more aging. That's part of the former things. And they have passed away. This is a beautiful book, isn't it? This is the end of, this is, we're coming to the end of the book. For those who know the Lord, this is what it will be like. This is a voice from the throne saying this. He'll dwell with us. He'll take away all sorrow and all sadness and all tears forever gone. Third thing, verse 5, God says, I'm going to make everything new and everything fresh. He's not saying I'm going to make all new things. He's going to say, he's just saying, I'm going to make all things new. It's like the new and improved, dynamic, miraculous version of that thing you always like. Like, for instance, if you are a, you're a new creature in Christ, but you're still you, but you're a new creature in Christ, but you're the you new creature in Christ. I believe, and theologians, the, the arm wrestle about this, is it fascinating to read it, about this continuity. What will the new earth be like, the old earth, or be it completely and unrecognizable? Well, he, he, we, could, we will come back to this, and we'll talk a lot about it, but just for now, just for today, so I don't you know, ruin your holiday weekend by going too long, let me just say this, when, you, when Jesus had a new glorified body, it was still Jesus and he was recognizable as Jesus. And, when, and he's the first fruits of those who slept. When we are resurrected, we will have a glorified body which looks like the, the you and people will recognize you. And the earth, when it's resurrected, I believe, will have a new glorified body. You can read about this in Romans chapter eight. And I believe it will be recognizable. I don't think... Jesus is going to give up on the earth and say, it's all over with. Now give that back to Satan. Let's do a new one. He's going to say, watch what I had in mind for this earth. And I believe that we will be able to explore this earth forever. And it will be a recognizable but yet new earth. And a new heaven. And a new Jerusalem with a new body. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? When your hair is falling out and your teeth are falling out and... You can't get along with your neighbors and, you know, it's like, it's kind of, it can be heavy. If we didn't have this hope, we would live in despair now, wouldn't we? Then God says, number four in verse five, God says, John, are you getting this down? That's what he says. Are you writing this down? Write this down. This is trustworthy and this is true. You can build your life on this. You can trust me on this. You say, where did he say that? Yeah, it's right there in verse 5. Did you miss it? He said, he was seated on the throne, says, behold, I'm making all things new. And he, all, and he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Doesn't matter what they say on the evening news. These words are trustworthy and true. Doesn't matter what that skeptic college professor who hates God says, these words are faithful and true. Doesn't matter what they say in popular culture, on your Instagram feed, on your Facebook feed, a TikTok rant, these words are faithful and true. People who build their lives on these words, they persevere, they have hope. People who don't build their lives on these words, they have only despair to look forward to. These words are faithful and true. That was the, that was the fourth thing. We have a biblical hope is an unwavering confidence that what God promised will happen. 
That's why he stops and says, write it down. This is truth. Francis Schaeffer said, big T truth. I like that. Number five, God said, I'm everything you'll ever need and everything you'll... Everything you've ever wanted and everything you'll ever need. This is done on the Alpha, on the Omega, on the the beginning, on the end. And then he says this. Listen to this. He says, I'm everything. I'm everything you ever needed, everything you ever will need. I'm the Alpha. I'm the beginning. I'm the Omega, the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. And he says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Eddie, this is the sweet spot, I think. Eddie and I usually exchange texts on Sunday morning. What do you think the sweet spot is? I think this is the sweet spot. For me, the whole thing is pretty sweet, most of it, except verse 8 is pretty painful. This is like, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Do you wish you could rewind and live in the watercolor past that you've made that grandpa could be alive and grandma could be alive and we could all play softball and he could hit the ball up in the garden and... And the, the dogs would all be there, and Grandma would make big fat, or Uncle Bill would make big fat hamburgers, and everybody would laugh, and, and everybody would be happy. That watercolor past that you kind of created that didn't really happen, but you had a longing for it. Is there something even better than that? Yes. That's why I made you hungry. That's why I made you thirsty. Tim Keller, and by the way, I'll give you a tip about Tim Keller. Do not. Listen to sermons by Tim Keller. There's a warning. You won't be able to forget them. You won't be able to get them out of your mind. Like if you're a pastor and you listen to a message by Tim Keller on the new heavens and the new earth, you have trouble not plagiarizing because you can't get it out. So don't do that. Don't listen to that guy. Tim Keller, write that down. Don't go listen to his stuff. But he, he preached on this, a really simple and profound message. And here's what he did. And it's a powerful thing. So I'm like, I'm like channeling my inner Tim Keller right now. That's a bad thing to say, wasn't it? I'm telling you what Tim said. This was so interesting. And and I'm going to butcher it, so you probably should listen to what he actually said. But he goes to the cross with this. And he says, look what it says. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You are hungry, and I'm going to satisfy all your hungers and all your thirst. And he says, and when Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? I'm thirsty. And what did he mean? He was thirsty. But there was something more because when Jesus died on the cross, he took all of our sin upon himself. He took all of your sin on himself. He took all of your guilt upon himself. He took all of your greed upon himself. He took all of your lust upon himself. He took all of your lies upon himself. He took all of your adultery upon himself. He took all of your hunger upon himself and he suffered hunger on the cross. He suffered thirst on the cross to set us free from ever longing again. And so the longing that we have now is only to motivate us to drink of the water of life freely and fully so that we will never thirst again. This is the promise of the Bible. How, how desperate to not know that. What despair to not believe that. How could you live in this difficult, broken, sad world unless you had a hope bigger than that? God said, I'm everything you need, everything, everything you ever longed for. My mother and dad are here uh, today, and, and, and my niece, Andrea, but my mom and dad are here, and, and you, you probably, I don't want to embarrass them, but you should probably all go thank Mrs. Pierpont for 
teaching your pastor everything he knows about the basics of theology. She did when I was a little kid. So we don't, I'm kind of get in trouble for that. But you know, and, and, and dad, uh, my dad, as in, in hundreds of car rides for hours, we did the, the deeper theology a little bit later. But mom, one day we were talking about heaven and I was a little boy and I said, mom, do you think there, and I remember the exact candy, but I think it was Reese's peanut butter cups. And I said, Mom, do you think there will be Reese's peanut butter cups in heaven? <laughs> That's what I asked. So, Mom, this is what I remember. And you can talk to Mom, she'll tell you the truth, but I'm just telling you my memory. <laughs> what I remember is Mom said something like this, something like this. Yes, if that's what you really love, that's what will be there. Unless it's not, and then it will be something that you like a lot more than Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Now, what was my mom saying? She was saying, if you go with your hungers and your thirst to Jesus, he will satisfy them. When I was a little boy, I went out on the playground over in Springfield, over by Battle Creek, other side of Battle Creek, and I got on the swings, and I discovered something. I was, this is going to be a little bit of a tender illustration, so listen carefully and don't pick on me after I'm done. But I'm out there swinging, and I'm swinging as high as I can, and somebody says to me, lean back in the swing. So I lean back in the swing, and that's pretty cool. Then somebody said, sit up really fast. You ever do this? Try it. Use a really big swing. Um, I go out, I sit up, I feel weightlessness. I was like, whoa, that was an amazing feeling. That was amazing. That was playground it was a playground feeling that was amazing. Then I got married and went on my honeymoon. There were some amazing feelings involved in that too. You could eat. I knew you'd be quiet when I said that. Um, and it was an amazing feeling. Like, okay, there's some real, there's some feelings involved here that are like, okay, that's better than the playground. Somebody said, you want to go back to the playground? I'm like, no, I'm good. No, don't ever need to go back to the playground. There are other things I could do that are, that are pleasurable. I, I don't want to belabor this. My mother is here. I'll get in some serious trouble. But... But I will say, what if God says, you think that's something? In, mar- in heaven, there's no marrying or giving in marriage. Like, explain, Lord. Here's what I believe. As wonderful as marriage is, as wonderful as it is to have a son that you love, a dad that you love, a mother that you love, there's still brokenness in that stuff in there. You never quite get it Right? But someday, Lois and I will have an understanding between us that we never had when we were alive, a longing satisfied, that we, and we'll say, wow, that's better than marriage stuff. That's so wonderful. How wonderful it is to think that when you're awake at night and your heart is broken because of the brokenness in this world, this is not the final chapter. These are the hard chapters in the middle. The final chapter reads good. This is what the Bible, this is the final chapters of the Bible. And then we had a, we had a, you ever had a, a, a moon pie? There's R.C. Cola, that's the southern people do that. They wash down their moon pie with R.C. Cola. You know why? Because those things are dry and waxy like hockey pucks. That's why. <laughs> it's like poor people. What in the world? So people say, aren't these good? I'm like, no, they're not good. They're what you eat because you can't afford things that taste good. That poor people, that's like, why you eat that? That's not good. One day we went over to Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, and they have a bakery over there. It charged a lot of money, but there's a reason for that. And they had a thing called 
over the moon pie. You guys are going to want to run and go over there when I'm done. I don't think they have it anymore. But they had a thing called over the moon pie. It was the moon pie on steroids. It was like not waxy. It was real chocolate. It had like marshmallow filling in it. It was like a chocolate cake thing with some, with some frosting on it. It was like, oh my word, it was amazing. It was like, now that is an over the moon pie. You see, you see that? Do you get what I'm getting at? I think this is what this passage is actually saying. It's like longing, let me show you. Hungry, let me show you. Thirsty, let me wait a God makes. That's like over the moon. That's like over the moon. God is capable, God is able, the great creator. Not everyone, though, is going to be with the Lord. We have, uh, we have a, few, a couple more. Uh, okay, here, here's number, number six. God said, I want to be as close as we can be. Here's how he put it. He says, the one who conquers, and by the way, guess what the Greek word for conquer there is? Yeah, it's the Nike word. We'll have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. As if God was reaching for the sweetest way to express a, a phileo love, a family affection. I will be his God. He, you will be, I'll be your God. You'll be, my, you'll be my child. You'll be my son. He said, I want us to be as close as we can possibly be. And that brings us back. My dad, dad, do you remember you and I spent a week together at the Greenfield camp? Greenfield camp was just an old city park made into a Bible camp. And it was one of the, it's one of the sweetest memories I have. When everybody was there, you sang, you told stories at night. Everybody, the guys slept in the barracks and, in a kind of a, and we would all talk. You'd hear people tell stories and laugh. They're Christian men that love the Lord. We sang hymns, we prayed, we ate together. It was just wonderful because the people there all knew the Lord and loved one another. You only saw them a few times a year and there, there you'd be. And that was just a wonderful, and then dad said, would you like us to paint the shelter house? My son and I would be glad to help you paint the shelter house. He was not telling the truth. He was saying, I would be glad to help paint the shelter house and I'll make my son come with me. And, and, and uh, so we went that week and spent the week at this camp where I went every summer and we were alone on an empty camp painting the shelter. And I love being with my dad. But was it not true? It's like, whoa, this is a different place altogether. Nobody's here. It's almost sadder because I can remember when all the pretty girls were here. That's before I met you, Lois. I, I remember when all my friends were here. I remember when we could tell stories. And now it's just an empty, empty place. It's, it's going to be the relationships that makes heaven heaven. That's what the Bible is teaching here, especially the relationship that we have with him and the relationships that he makes possible with us, with others. And that brings us to the last point, and that is there will be no sin or no sinners there. And it gets sober again. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, they'll have a portion in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. People who are characterized by ungodliness are not believers. Now you understand, there are going to be people in heaven that lied or nobody gets there. Through the righteousness of Christ, there are going to be people that murdered, God forbid, that committed every imaginable kind of sin. And yet, those who are characterized by sin 
it shows they're not genuine believers. They're not going to be there. And, they're, and, and, and this is in the context, in the, I think, in a positive context, in the sense that there'll be no evil or evil people present there. Now, let me just tell you this before we're done. And that is, um, no, let me just conclude today. And I have so much more to say about this. So much more to share about this. So, so much that's beautiful that I think will help you and encourage you that I don't want to rush through any of it. So what I want to do right now is I want you to think about this. Maybe just I'll leave you with this little thought. In 1952, there was a woman whose name was Florence. Her name was Florence Chadwick. Maybe you remember hearing about her. She swam the English Channel. So she was a powerful swimmer. And then she decided that she was going to swim from Catalina Island back to the mainland in, in California that she's going to swim. So she, she got in the water early one morning, and she started to swim from Catalina Island in, but the morning was kind of foggy. And so she had a problem. She couldn't really see, and she did all that she could to swim to shore. And the people that were with her kept saying, keep going, keep going. You know, you're almost there. You're almost there. But finally, she said, I just couldn't go anymore because she said it was so cold and it was so foggy. I, her own mother was there, and her mother said, Keep going, you're almost there. But she couldn't keep going and she quit. And she was a quarter mile from shore when she quit. And then they interviewed her and she said, when I was swimming, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I would have made it. 